Last week, Paul started us on the five solas of the Reformation. So really getting into the heart of kind of what the Reformation itself was mainly about. But all of this is in light of who we are as a church. What do we call ourselves a Reformed church, a Protestant church? Um, Could somebody, by way of recap, just summarize kind of what was the Reformation about? Anybody? Non-Paul? Trying to fix the things that were wrong. Oh, that's a great point. So trying to fix the things that were, were wrong. What you're kind of saying is, hey, we're not trying to be revolution. Revolution tends to come at the tip of a spear, right? There's, there's fighting. Let's burn this thing to the ground. They're not doing that. But they're trying to simply reform. What were the main reforms that they were trying to change? Corruption. Corruption. Yeah. That's right. There was some moral corruption. Anything else? Some theological error, right? So they're seeing things, they're, oh, this, this doesn't seem quite right. Reformation also kind of comes historically at a, at a really unique time. There's lots of different pressures contributing to why this thing happened. One of them being, the you know, we study the Renaissance and we see this great um, sort of classical revival of art and architecture. And coming with the study of that classical art and architecture was the study of classical languages. So you had people who could read Greek and Hebrew for the first time, uh, and they were preaching the Latin Mass and going, you, you know what, actually, now that I can read the Bible, that's not quite what it says. You know, so it's starting this theological change, and people are going, if we're going back to the sources, um, the, the term that we use in English, the hocus-pocus, kind of like for magic, right, comes from uh, a mispronunciation of Lat- Latin phrases that many of the priests were using uh, during the Mass. They were saying these, these hocum-pocum kind of things that they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, so it was just like just superstitious nonsense. What you're saying is just hocus-pocus. And so they were learning what the Bible actually said, and it caused this great revival of questions and reform to fix what was going on, these theological errors and these, uh, this moral corruption. So Paul had started us off last week, and the first of the five solas, um, the goal today is to go through the rest of them. We'll see if we make it. Um, but we got to sola fide. We got to sola fide. Somebody, um, can they recap? What is sola fide? It's a Latin phrase, obviously. What does it mean in English? Faith alone. So if you see these today, you'll see the solas, five solas. They're like our English word alone. So it's faith alone. What does it mean as the reformers begin to clarify their doctrine that salvation was by faith alone? Why was that so important? Couldn't buy it. Couldn't add any of your works to it. Right. What happens if you can't add your works to your faith? How does it make you feel? Can't boast. Can't boast. You're not in control. Yeah, you're not in control. That's right. These things were coming in line as more the, the scriptures came into clarity. This doctrine kind of bubbled up to the top. Hey, it looks like we're not in control. It looks like you can't buy your salvation. It looks like 
It's faith. Martin Luther, we'll kind of use him as a, uh, maybe as an example as we weave through the five solas, this bro- much broader story than Luther, uh, by the way. But, but Luther's story has an appeal, I think, with, with all of these solas in particular. Martin Luther, uh, when he came to faith in Christ, he was just walking in a field one day, apparently. It's kind of a similar uh, testimony, by the way, of Charles Spurgeon. And he was almost hit by a, a bolt of lightning. And uh, he, he said this prayer, and he's like, Lord, please, I think he said, St. Anne, please protect me if, if you will spare me from getting struck by lightning and get me out of this storm, I'll, I'll be a monk. And he did. He gave himself over to life in the church, and he describes himself as extremely monkish. Right? He would uh, cloister himself up and uh, just felt miserable for his sins, and he was just the worst person ever. And so he would just often um, drive everybody crazy with how anxious he was. Some of you uh, know people like that. I don't know why I said that. Um, uh, no, uh, no, Daphne said good. Um, but he said he was he was reading the scriptures and it just it hit him. So the actual bolt of lightning that did hit Martin Luther was Habakkuk two four. The righteous shall live by faith. And then Romans 1.17. The just, right, the New Testament kind of capstone and thesis is the just, those who are just before God, live by faith. And Martin Luther just describes this overwhelming sense of rest that he had for the first time. He said, I, I hated God. I was under the thumb of a miserable miser, and God kind of held me under there under his thumb, and I was in his service. I was doing what he wanted. I thought I could be this monk and please God, but I'm, I'm in service in a miserable relationship with God. And he describes how freeing it was that really my justification, this state of my righteousness, is by faith alone, not purchased, not earned with my works, given my grace. It changes everything, right? And that was really, I think, a lot of the fuel for Luther to go forward and to, to preach this so um, dogmatically, is that, we, hey, we've got to get this scripture right. Let's talk about the nature of faith really quick before we move on, because these are not uh, 500-year-old squabbles that we are a church that just inherited them, and we acknowledge them occasionally. These are, these are ripe for today, for importance in our life, for getting these things right. A lot of these are not natural to the flesh to get right, like the nature of faith. Let's talk about faith for a minute. When you think of the only thing that makes one righteous before God, the only attachment point is faith. Does that feel like a strong attachment to God? Or does that feel like just this feeble, minuscule thing? What do you? How do you think of faith? It would depend on where the faith comes from. Am I the one forcing it, or someone God give it to me? Okay. That feels more secure than having a faith. Right. Yeah. As an as an attachment point. To eternal security. And 
God says it's by faith. Like, really? Maybe something a little bit? <laughs> you can see why a transactional purchase of faith feels better, right? You can see why absolution from a priest feels better. And it turns the question on, well, what does that tell us about the nature of God? What does that tell us about what he's calling us to do in regards to him? It's on his terms, not our terms. It's on his terms. And it's a call to trust his character. Salvation is a call to trust his character. Now, a lot of times we give salvation uh, invitations, right? We, we're, we're, we're casting a product that people want, right? I want salvation. I want eternal security. I, I want everlasting life. But that faith is a faith in the object of, of God, faith in, in his gift of Christ. And we can easily sort of side change that with just calling for generic faith. But faith in whom? Right? And that's the call of the gospel. The, the call of, of God is that, hey, I am self-revealing to you. I'm revealing even in the Son. Look who I am. And he comes to us in ways that we can't believe and we, we reject because we're just like, there's no way you're that patient. There's, there's no way you're that merciful. Right? Just surely you can't be. He says, no, come, come and trust me. Come and trust me. So you made a good point, Karen, about it would depend on faith, how strong, is it my faith? Because my faith is up and down, it wavers, or, or what? Well, we're not saved by God's faith, we're saved by faith that he's given us as, as a gift. I heard a great illustration the other day, I, th- I think it'd be helpful in this point, and it was, the illustration was something to the effect of, have you, have you ever seen those like old black and white videos of like early days of flight? Uh, they like you have a guy and he'll like strap on like wings and everyone's around. There's a couple of buddies like you can do it on top of the hill, and this guy with the video camera, you know, the the little thing like this, and then they run off the hill and the one wing crashes and, and then the, that guy's dead. The, the, the next guy tries. Um, well, they have a lot of faith, but the object of their faith is not worth trusting, right? It's this kind of puny, wimpy thing. Um, the illustration I heard was, you know, think of a, a, a lady who's terrified of flying, uh, just will not get on a plane for anything, you know, but she's got a new grandbaby uh, in another state. She's like, yeah, I just, I'm going to get on the plane, I guess. She's riding the entire flight, just white-knuckled, you know, just, just trying to make it. But the object of her faith is airworthy. So even though she feels volatile and all, all over the place, the object that she's trusting in is, is worthy to be trusted. Um, that's part of the nature of, of faith there in Christ, is that our faith can feel sometimes volatile. It can feel overconfident. Sometimes it can feel really feeble sometimes. But the difference maker is in the object of the faith and where the faith is placed. That's sola fide. It's kind of to wrap up. So let's move on. To our new ones for today, sola gratia. This is salvation by grace alone. 
Salvation, uh, excuse me, saving faith must be given to us, and it comes to us only by the grace of God. We cannot earn saving faith, and though some might sell it as a product, you cannot buy saving faith, and you cannot manufacture it for ourselves. Again, kind of going back to, to Martin Luther. Um, there was a man named Erasmus who was sort of debating Luther and trying to get Luther to, to see wisdom. Erasmus was a uh, humanist, a language scholar, and he wrote this book on the freedom of the will. And the freedom of the will, freedom to, to choose. That, that's part of what it, it is to, to acknowledge the, the grace of God and to choose salvation. And Luther responded with his famous book. Does anybody know what it, what, what it is? It's the bondage of the will. Right? Luther said, no, this is, our, 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 our wills are bound. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we're going to be saved at all, if we're going to be saved by sola fide, by having faith in God, well, that faith has to come as a gift. It has to come as grace. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. If man could make their faith himself, uh, he would have earned his salvation. The making of faith would have been the one good work he needed to do to be saved. And so this go ahead, uh, this is contrary, it's, it's anti Sola fide, it's anti-faith alone, and it's not even possible, right? So if we had this sort of grace in us to choose, then we would, but we don't. We cannot regenerate our own spirits. We need God to give us faith. Uh, This differs from the Roman Catholic Church, not that they don't believe in grace or faith, but they believe that grace dwells in a person and that that grace is enabling for them to merit their salvation by the performance of faithful works. Salvation, at the end of the day, for the Reformers, what they saw, one of the big key highlights they saw, salvation was a gift, not a reward. Salvation was a gift, not a reward. We talked about faith and how that makes you feel a little bit. It kind of makes you feel on edge because our faith is so volatile, sometimes very small. But it calls us to trust God's character. What does sola gratia draw out? What is the high grace of God? If we're going to be saved at all, it's on His terms. What does that draw out? Gratitude, one, yeah. What do you say that, Matt? Thankful that, that I am, that, he, that I, we have that gift. Yeah. Did God choose you because, even if it was grace, did God choose you because you were smart enough? Right. Yeah. What do you say, what were you going to say, Andrew? The sovereignty of God in salvation. Right. What do you mean by big word sovereignty? Right. Now you're, you're good. It's the right word. Now, is that unfair? 
but I need to think about explaining that for a Sure. Sure. The answer is no. Yeah. And that was such a remarkable, humbling thing. Especially for those who are coming into reading the languages there for themselves. And you get to passages of Scripture like Romans 8 and Romans 9. And God says, look, can the, can't the potter do with the clay whatever he wants? Can he harden Pharaoh's heart if he wants? Can he give grace where he wants? Can he make vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use? Yes, he can. One of the byproducts of high, the high grace of God and the high sovereignty of God is that we, in my view, all, all of a sudden, God is just, he's just, he's just holy. I mean, he's just, he's beyond us. Whereas I had kind of had, I, I can easily slip into having God under my, I want him under my thumb. I want a God I can explain. I want to know everything about him. I want to know how to manipulate him and corner him. I want to know why he has chosen me or I'm in this relationship with him. And the, the scriptures put God, like in this category we studied recently with Job, who, who are you? David says, God, who, who are you that you would have mind for, for man? Now, the astonishing thing is when you look at God and you see his holiness and you see his grand sovereignty, then you go back to relook. Do you find him cold and austere and, and, and heavy-handed? No, you find him patient and merciful and calling for those to follow him. And he's giving grace. He's building his church. If you're in this room right, and not hardened your heart, God has given you grace to repent of your sins. He's given you grace to have faith. What's the result of that? What are we called to do at that point? Worship. Part of being a Protestant church and taking grasp on these things, sola gratia, the, the grace of God, I, all of life here, every breath, every heartbreak, every, uh, every second of the day is grace. Hebrews 1.3, God is upholding the world by the word of his power. It's grace. And then my salvation is grace. And eternity is grace. It's grace everywhere. It's grace all you can see. You're just, you know, it's like you're in the ocean. Above you is grace. Below, side, and side. It's all gifts of God's kindness. Keep a steady clip here. And go on to Christ alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Full stop. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Easy theological proposition to say. Subtly, you know, as Calvin says, our hearts are little idol factories. Those certificates, those tangibilities that we like, that it's by grace alone, sure, I admit that, but there's this, of course, I would figure it out, though at least... Um, those in the Protestant camp must make it our frequent and abundant banner that the sole mediator between God and man is Christ. From the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, to the reminder at communion table, to the preaching of God's word, because there is no other way.
There is no other way for man to be saved. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Faith in anyone else will not save, and no other sacrifice can atone for sins. Second Corinthians 3 says it this way, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And Christ is the, the lifter of the veil. So throughout the Old Testament and the sacrificial system of how do we, how do we get to God, how do we atone for our sins, there's this instructions to do so, but the clarity of, of what all those symbols, the types and the shadows are pointing to, it's fulfilled in Christ. First John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Like we referred to already, John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through The Roman Catholic Church, particularly as the Reformers were clarifying this doctrine, what was the need there to clarify? The need was that there were mediators between God and man. Salvation was only available through the church. And the decree of the bishop could grant or take this away regardless of a person's actual faith. So, Where does it put the actual control of mediation? In the church, right? It's, okay, Jesus, thanks. We're gonna you know outsource this now to us. We can take care of this. This was the real rub. It wasn't that the reformers were opposed to the institutional church. They weren't trying to do revolution. That's a good juxtaposition, by the way. Revolution versus reformation, right? Those are big historical points that are good lenses to help you see what they're doing. They're not just trying to burn it down. They weren't even opposed to the church exercising its role in the keys of the kingdom, right? Exercising church discipline, as it were. But they believed that the exercise of these things were based on faithfulness um, and not with the will of the bishop. Salvation comes by Christ alone. After each one of these, we've kind of reflected a little bit on how that makes us feel, right? We've, we've gotten to this a little bit about the faith and sort of the frailty of faith and grace, but Christ alone. Protestant reformers are going, no, we, Christ is enough. I mean, look at the, look at Hebrews, right? Christ is our mediator. We need no other mediator. Let's see if we can make it to the last two. Sola Scriptura. The Bible is the only final authority for faith and practice. The Bible stands on its own and does not require official interpretation. Let me say that again slower. The Bible stands on its own and does not require official interpretation. Not all of Scripture is easy, but all of Scripture can be understood. It should be made available to all believers and as an essential part of the Christian life and how we interpret Scripture should come from Scripture itself and not from any outside authority. The Bible and nothing else is God's instruments, uh, instrument for revealing himself in salvation to his people. This differs from the Roman practice of what's called the magisterium. Those who have uh, an official and authoritative interpretation of what the scripture says. So, for instance, Paul just referenced the Catholic catechism. Uh, we have the 
Catechism, Heidelberg, Westminster, um, those are wise, faithful, tested um, interpretations of scriptures. Uh, but a person's conscience cannot be bound by the catechism if the scripture teaches otherwise. In contrast, the Catholic catechism um, is an official interpretation of scripture. It cannot err. The conscience of a Catholic is bound to what it says, even if they think scripture says something else. Scripture gets its authority. Listen to this. Scripture receives its authority from the church. Martin Luther, when he was starting to preach these things and, and write his books, and he was held to trial, sort of the famous diet of uh, verms. It looks like worms, but it's pronounced verms. Um, when he when he was told to recant, and they said, hey, look, tell us, tell us plainly without venom, in your response, will you recant? And he says, I can't. Unless I am, unless I am um, persuaded by Scripture, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. Right? Luther's, one of his big claims there was, I'm not just fighting you guys on uh, my feelings or opinions. But as long as you will wrestle with me on the terms of Scripture, we can debate this thing. And essentially what was thrown back into his faith is, Luther, who do, who do you think you are to overthrow the church's interpretation? Right? That was kind of the, the throwback into his faith. Who do you think you are, just one man, that you can defy the authority of the church? And he said, well, there is an authority over that authority, and it's the Scriptures. And they said, well, we reject that. The Scriptures are submissive to us, and we will tell you what they say. Kevin Van Hooser uh, gives a great line in reference to understanding tradition and its authority of Scripture. I think some natural questions for this room would be, what about... What about tradition? What about when we quote other theologians? What can we learn? Well, yes, but this is how we should see it. Tradition is but the moon to Scripture's sun. What light tradition casts and what authority it has is secondary and derivative. It's ministerial, though it is nonetheless real light. Does that make sense? Right. It, it, it's real light, sure, but it's like light reflected onto the moon. Right? It's ministerial, but it is not authoritative in that sense. So the scriptures became sort of um, in wonderful timing. All of this had a remarkable timing. The, the, you, know, you see in God's providence, uh, the early spread of the New Testament you know, in the, the Greek language. Well, Alexander the Great had come through and made Greek kind of the lingua franca of the day and there goes the gospel and the reformation you had um, the invention of the latin sail which was a sail that was like a triangle that all of a sudden you could fight the wind and there's uh, you know columbus and uh, cortez and the discovery of the new world and well now you have all these like kingdom disputes and who's going to rule these lands and well, Martin Luther's fighting with the Pope. Well, if we break with the Pope, we can take that land for ourselves instead of Spain. And the, it, it just all this kind of stuff's happening. And then there's the printing press. 
And many of the reformers took this and ran with it, printing theological treatises, but most importantly, scripture in the language of the common people. So they're hearing these, these, ah, these people, there's, there's fighting, there's debate, there's division. But they can take it in their own hand and say, you know what, it seems that I've been misled, I've been mistaught. Um, and they can see for themselves. So the authority comes from Scripture alone. Last one, Soli Deo Gloria. It says, glory to God alone. We already saw in Ephesians 2, we are saved that no man may boast. It is the grace of God. Soli Deo Gloria is precisely that, so that no man may boast in anything. It wasn't that we were smart enough. It wasn't that we were wealthy enough. It wasn't that we were well-connected enough. It wasn't that we were moral enough. All of salvation and all that we have been given was grace. It was grace that came explicitly through Christ. We learned all these wonderful things from the Scriptures. That grace that was given was faith to believe. And all of this produces worship. And worship to who? Worship to self? Worship to a pope? Worship to a church? Worship to a saint? No, worship to, to God alone. Everything in salvation, start to finish, is God's doing. He died on the cross for our sins, poured out His wrath on Christ instead of us. He offers forgiveness to Christ. He imputes righteousness to us. He gives us the gift of faith. Every part of salvation is to His own glory and none to ours. Every Christian is a saint because God has made them this difference from Rome's teaching about sins and purgatory and infused righteousness, that some men are more righteous than others. Some sins are worse than others and require more payment than just what Christ offered on the cross. Some people are more righteous than others, and the church declares them to be saints. These saints then become mediators between God and man as they can be prayed to for help. So the whole system of particularly the reformers' world, was racked not only with maybe the central figure of Christ, but what is even like the daily prayer? A Hail Mary. And so you're kind of surrounded with this, um, this visible church that prayer can go to and merit can come from and the treasury of merits, right? This, this kind of bank that the, the church can deal out merits from these other saints. Well, who does that begin to, in the Reformers' right view, give glory to? These saints can be brothers in Christ, but just like everyone else in this room are saints in Christ. But all of that, if it's affected at all to any of us through any time period, it's come through Christ, and all the glory belongs to Christ. So much of the Reformation language, and you could see these woodcuts, they're almost like the Twitter of the day, all right? It's, it's usually cartoonish um, uh, calling out for the church is that they are robbing the glory of God. They're robbing the glory of God.